We have a lot of work to do tonight. We are going to be walking through um, the last five chapters of Genesis. Um, and we also covered a lot of ground last week. And so wrapping up Genesis, I know it's not the end of the year. Um, we're going to wrap up the text tonight. But then I'm excited. We've got some cool stuff coming just talking about what does it mean to be a covenant people um, in light of this covenant that God has made and those types of things, which should be awesome. But for tonight, we are going to wrap up the text. So you can go ahead and turn to Genesis 46. Um, obviously, we will not read it all, but we'll read some, summarize some, kind of talk about just the important things that you need to be aware of. Um, if you've been with us last week, kind of where we are at in the narrative and in the story has been um, Joseph's brothers were sent to Egypt because of the famine. And so they were there. We talked last week about them coming multiple times, what that looked like until Joseph finally revealed himself to them um, and, and told them that, you know, kind of this big idea of God's sovereignty, that what you had meant for evil, God meant for good and how God's used this and how he's going to use this. Um, and Joseph kind of goes on to tell them that the, the famine is nowhere near over. And so go and get our father, bring everyone. I will take care of you. Um, and I will make sure that you have the things that you need. So that's sort of where we ended last week. Um, so Jacob has just found out, which that had to be a fun conversation. Hey, Dad, you know your son that you thought died. We sort of sold him into slavery all these years and have kept it a secret. But good news, we know where he is now, right? That's the conversation. So, um, But Jacob is so excited to get to see Joseph um, and to get to be provided for. But if you kind of step back from these particular chapters a little bit and think through the bigger story of our narrative, um, it's important to remember this would not seem to fall in line with God's promise, right? Because initially, way back earlier in Genesis, we see Abraham being told, go to this you know, land that I will show you that I'm going to give to you and to your descendants, right? Um, so he's faithful to do that. And so now all of a sudden, um, there is this, you know, invitation to go to Egypt, which is not the promised land. And that's kind of where our story um, is going gonna, is gonna to pick up with um, some assurance from the Lord. So we will start in Genesis 46, and we will read a little bit. It says, So Israel, which that's referring to Jacob, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid, <clears throat> excuse me, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. And then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him. Um, and so it's been sort of a, a little bit of a theme that as Jacob has moved about and around in the land that God has appeared to him um, or there have been angels or there has been different guidance. And so we, we see that happening again 
Um, and this is this right here would have been super important, you guys, for the original audience, because Moses is the one writing this. And that means that these 400 years of slavery and oppression and horrible things that have happened to the nation of Israel is pretty fresh in their history. Um, and so this right here is just showing that despite the really difficult things that are going to happen later on, God is working out his plan, even by bringing them into Egypt. And um, it's, it's interesting, too, earlier, Genesis 15, God actually kind of shares this with Abraham um, and, and kind of in a vision and says that this is going to happen to your offspring. And I don't think Egypt specifically is mentioned, but that's what he's talking about. And he says, you know, that they will be oppressed for 400 years, but then I will bring them out and that God will be faithful to his promises. So there is that assurance. Um, and then there's, there's a lot in here just about genealogy and names and who all is going, who all is part of this family, who all God brings. Um, and it really is an act of, of faith in the Lord and trust in God and in his promises because they didn't leave some of the family and go back and forth to be provided for, although I'm sure that was an option. But the text is really clear that they take everything and they pick up and go. Every single person, all of their possessions, all that they have, um, and they go to Egypt. Um, and so that's kind of a lot of the rest of this chapter. The very end of 46, we won't read, but is just a really sweet reunion um, with Joseph and Jacob, getting to see one another again um, and getting to be together. And then Joseph kind of has a debrief with them once they're there about what's going to happen now that they're in Egypt, where are they going to live, what's this going to look like. Um, and they're shepherds, so he's, he's recommending that they live in, in a region that's called Goshen. So they're going to go before Pharaoh um, and ask if they can dwell in this land. So that kind of brings us to chapter 47 is the start of that. It says that Joseph chooses five of his brothers. It doesn't say which ones. I don't know why. I really wish I knew which ones he picked. I just think that that would be interesting. I wonder, just with all the favoritism or different things that have gone on, who did he take? I don't know. But he chose five of his brothers to go in um, and to have an audience with Pharaoh. And Pharaoh um, kind of asked them, what's your occupation? And you know, they explain that they're shepherds, and then they ask if they can go ahead and settle um, in Goshen. And he, and he gives his consent to that. And he even goes so far as to say, you know, if any of you have special skills um, with handling livestock, then I want you to be in charge of mine too. And so that's just a really favorable conversation. The Lord's continuing to provide um, really well for them. And then I want to go ahead and read to you. I thought this was so interesting. Um, 47 verse 7. Um, because this is kind of the account of Jacob, Joseph bringing Jacob in. Um, it says that then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. I just think it's a really cool illustration um, that God has promised that through Israel, all peoples and all nations will be blessed. And here he is coming before Pharaoh. And if you notice in the text, he blesses him at the start of their conversation 
and then again at the end of their conversation, which is just kind of a cool illustration. Obviously, the ultimate blessing is going to be Jesus and what that means for us, but it's kind of a neat thing that that, that happens there. Um, so the rest of this chapter, well, at least verses 11 through 26, are really a historical count, account of um, the famine and what's going on in Egypt. And if you'll remember back to kind of the dreams and then the interpretation of the dreams um, that Joseph gives Pharaoh, that it's going to be very, very severe. And that's exactly what happens. It is extremely severe. Um, and so first, the people have money because, remember, they had the seven years of plenty, right? Things were fine. Th- well, more than fine. Things were wonderful. Um, so maybe they have some money. First, they have money that they can come and buy food. And so they do that, and they're provided for, but then the money runs out. Um, and so when the money runs out, they um, come back to Joseph, and they say, you know, we need food for us and for our little ones. Will you please buy our animals and our livestock? Um, and so he does that, and they're able to be provided for again. But eventually, that also runs out, and they come back again a third time to Joseph and say, um, please buy us as slaves and buy our land. Um, and so what he ends up doing is kind of, um, kind of a tax, buying the land but then giving them seed um, and saying, you know, plant, provide for your families. Um, there's going to be food. But then of what you produce, he takes 20%, which might sound like a lot, but actually at that time was not and would really have enabled them once the famine was over to rebuild their wealth um, and, to be, and to be okay again. And so actually... Um, the last part of that chapter is um, them telling Joseph that they 100% accredit him to saving their lives, how grateful they are um, for his wisdom and for the provision that was able to take care of them. Um, And then the rest of the chapter sort of wraps up with a little bit of information on, um, on Israel and on the house of Jacob and what's happening. So they do go ahead and settle in Goshen, And they gain possessions, and the Bible specifically says that they are fruitful and they multiply there. Um, And Jacob lives in Egypt for 17 years. Um, He gets to be there. So through the end of the famine and then um, continuing on, he and his family are dwelling in the land, gaining possession, um, and and God is multiplying them as a nation. Um, And then um, the the last part of that chapter kind of starts to talk about... um, Jacob knows that his time is coming to a close, um, that he is going to be dying. And so it kind of starts us on a couple of chapters of his final words to his children um, and some instructions and things. And so the first thing that he does is call Joseph to him um, at the very end of 47 and have a conversation with him where he really kind of makes two things clear. The first is that he does not want to be buried in Egypt. Um, he, again, is, is trusting in the Lord's covenant promise that this is not where we're going to end up, um, but God is making us into a great nation, and there is going to be um, the land that was promised to us. And so I want to be buried um, with the rest of our family, with Abraham and Isaac and with their wives. And um, so he kind of makes that really clear to Joseph. He actually makes that clear a couple of times, um, that you are not to leave me here don't bury me in Egypt. Um, But the interesting thing was the person at that time that was in charge of the burial was the head of the clan, was kind of the head of the family. And so the other thing that's happening at the end of that chapter is really Jacob putting Joseph in charge and saying, you know, I'm turning over the reins to you. 
Um, so it's kind of the ultimate fulfillment of what we saw back in Genesis 37, all those years ago when Joseph had those dreams, right? That his mother and his father and his brothers would bow down to him. Um, and some of that's already happened, but this is kind of the final, um, the final fulfillment of that, that that is taking place. Um, so that's, that's kind of the end of, um, of 47. And then if we move on into 48... There is an adoption ceremony that takes place. I had no idea that existed in the Bible until I got to study that this week, which I thought was really, really cool. Um, but Joseph, we're told, he has two children. He has two sons, um, Ephraim and Manasseh. And Jacob kind of describes um, his line of thinking that he, these are Joseph's sons, and Joseph's mother was Rachel. And Jacob lost Rachel um, kind of early during childbirth and basically says that her line was cut short. She wasn't able to continue having children. Um, and so um, kind of similar to if you remember when we were studying about Judah and Tamar, um, that if, if, some, if, a, if a man died before being able to give his wife children and he had an able brother, that brother could kind of come in and produce offspring for the dead brother, for that line to kind of continue on. And this is kind of Jacob's way of, um, of doing that for Rachel, that he is going to adopt Joseph's two sons as his own. Um, he actually says, like, as Reuben and Simeon are mine, um, that they will be mine. And so this ceremony kind of takes place, um, and, and he explains all of that, what that's going to look like. Um, let's go ahead and read 48, verse 17. It says that um, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And so that's something that we've kind of um, seen to, to be a theme, right, throughout the book of Genesis, that despite what the world says and despite um, the firstborn being kind of the favored one and being first, there being this switch um, is just sort of an interesting thing. So um, we're going to move on to chapter 49, which is going to be, so Jacob's basically had, he's had this kind of these words with Joseph. Then there's been this ceremony where he's taking children as his own. And then he's going to go ahead and have his last words with his whole family. And he is going to pronounce blessing or just a pronouncement of what has been um, over each one of his sons. And if you remember <clears throat> the last time that Genesis records Jacob being um, part of a blessing like this was when he was stealing his brother's blessing, right? His father Isaac was, um, was going to give this particular blessing um, to his brother Esau. And Jacob tricks his father into thinking that um, he is Esau, and he gets that blessing for himself. So um, if you were here for that, you may remember we talked a little bit about, like, what is this blessing? What does it mean? Um, so what it is not is fortune-telling. 
Um, it is also not necessarily like prophecy. Um, one commentator, I really appreciated this, kind of described it as um, if you give something or someone um, a name that you, you know, like I'm, I'm naming them this and it means strong and I hope that will be true in their life. Um, that it's, it's kind of, it's similar to that. And it's included in our Bible for a reason. And as you'll see, it's, it's like these things do come to pass, um, which is just really interesting. So, and it's called the blessing, but a lot of this is that, that Jacob is about to say is not necessarily blessing, um, but is more stating some facts even about his sons or different things that have happened. Um, and so as we won't read all of it, but as we read few, a few of these, um, you can keep that in mind. So we'll just read a couple um, of the words that he's going to say. And before we do that, just a quick refresher on Simeon and Levi. So we'll start with them and we'll kind of read what Jacob has to say about them. Um, if you remember the story of, they're, they're the two that had the sister Dinah. And there was this area uh, called Shechem. And there was a prince of Shechem who took Dinah and raped her and then wanted to marry her. Um, which was a horrible situation. Um, but Simeon and Levi um, did not exactly respond the best way possible. Actually, Jacob was really furious with what they did. So they had a conversation um, with that prince, and I believe his father, with them saying, please let us marry the girl. And Simeon and Levi said, um, yes, we'll do that if you get every single male in your town to be circumcised because we can't intermarry with you unless that happens. I have no idea how they convinced every single man in that area to do this. I do not know, but they did. I know they told them, we'll intermarry with these people and their possessions will become ours. It still seems like really a stretch, but the guys do it. And then as they are healing on the most painful day where they would have been the least able to defend themselves, Simeon and Levi come through and kill all of the men and they take the women and they take the children. Um, and Jacob is so upset when this happens. And so we're going to read what he has to say about them and, and just know that this is what he's referring to as, as we read that. So it's chapter 49. We'll start in verse five. So he says that Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel, O oh my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Um, and so that, that is kind of what he's referring to. And interestingly enough, when he says that they will be dispersed, Obviously, a person can't be dispersed, but he's talking about their descendants. Um, what happens historically is that um, Simeon never really gets um, like a full, complete ownership in the promised land. Instead, they have villages that are kind of scattered about. And Levi, the line of Levi is they become a priesthood. So they don't have any land as inheritance. Um, so that definitely comes to be. Um, and then we're going to read just a little bit um, about Judah. So let's keep going with pick up in verse 8. It says, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. 
he stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes." Um, the scepter shall not depart, that a ruler shall not depart. So Jesus ultimately comes from the line of Judah. And when that's talking about tribute or honor is going to take place and that the people shall obey him. Um, and I won't get too much into that. Drew's going to talk to us more um, about that in Jesus coming from the line of Judah. But that's kind of the pronouncement over him. And then we won't read them all, but Jacob does go on. He's got things to say um, about each and every, each and every child. Um, and then in verse 29, let's go ahead and read that. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Um, I think it's really cool that his last instructions to them are based in a faith of God's promises and what he knows to be true about God um, is just really cool. So chapter 50 um, kind of explains the burial of Jacob and what happens after that. And so there were 40 days of embalming, which was an Egyptian practice. Um, so that took place and 70 days total of weeping and mourning. Um, essentially, it was this huge production. And as that time neared, Joseph went to Pharaoh and asked permission basically to leave and to take people with him to honor his father's wishes. Let me go. Let me bury him. So Pharaoh grants that. Um, and it's th this text tells us that Joseph, the elders of Joseph's household, all the elders of the land, all the elders of Egypt, and the household of Jacob, they all go to bury him. Um, and it's such a huge, you know, procession that the the neighboring um, nations are are taking note and asking questions and saying what is going on. Um, I think it is really interesting to note that. God promises Abraham, I'm going to make you famous. I'm going to make you into this great nation. Um, and then his grandson has a funeral like this, right? It's just crazy to think about how many people were going and everything that was happening. Um, it's kind of cool. But they are faithful to what has been asked and what has been requested of them. They, they go, they bury Jacob, um, and then they come home. And I don't know why, but the next section of the text Every time I think about it, I just start giggling because it's the account of what Joseph's brothers do. Now that Jacob is gone, I guess they start looking at each other and just feeling a little nervous and thinking, okay, what if Joseph has just been biding his time and waiting for dad to die and now he's going to kill us or not take care of us? I don't know, but he's a very powerful man. 
And so this family is so dysfunctional. Rather than have a conversation with Joseph, um, the text tells us that they send a messenger to Joseph, and the messenger basically says this, hey, when, um, when dad was alive, he asked us to tell you to like be nice to us and to forgive us. <laughs> and so that is the message that they send. Not even in a meeting, they just send a note like, you know, please be gracious, which Joseph is. Um, and he is so kind that the, the text just talks about um, his love for them and, and his heart. It's just, it's cool. But then we have kind of that famous verse 20, which we referenced last week um, when we talked about the sovereignty of God, which is um, Joseph saying to his brothers that as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and for your little ones. And so he comforts them and he speaks kindly to them. Um, and he continues to live out his life and to see, you know, different um, generations of his grandchildren. Um, and then we kind of get to wrap up Genesis with the close of Joseph's life. And verse 24 says, um, And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. Um, And then he passes away. So again, he's ending his life um, with faithfulness in the fact that he is trusting God for this covenant promise. Um, and trusting the Lord's faithfulness in that. And that's exactly what happens is, you know, all those years later when um, the children of Israel are rescued and Moses is leading them out, they take Joseph's bones and they take him up out of Egypt um, and he is able to um, to properly be buried. So uh, we will take a quick break. Then Drew will get up here and will talk to us um, a little bit more about Jesus and his kingship. All right. I would like to. Uh, I would like to. Before I begin, if you don't mind, just take a minute to pray for us. So let me do that real quick, okay? Dear God in heaven, uh, as we open up your word, I pray that you would enable me to speak clearly and speak well, and I pray that. Um, your gospel would go forward in power tonight um, into our hearts, changing us, uh, enabling us to love Jesus by the power of your Spirit. I ask you that in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. So, a, uh, I won't say important date, but a somewhat famous date took place last year uh, on May 19th. Does anybody know what big thing happened on May... I'm going to say... We'll put big in quotation marks. Big thing happened on May 19th of last year. anniversary of the Reformation? No. That would be cooler. It was a famous wedding. Okay, there you go. I, had to, I actually had to look up pronunciation of her name, but... Uh, on May 19th, 2018, the royal wedding between Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, um, which, like I said, I was on, like, Googling pronunciation of that to make sure I was saying that right, but um, got, uh, they got married, okay? Um, happened in, I believe, England, uh, which means it was 
early in the morning, uh, early in the morning in the States. So 6 a.m. Central Time in the U.S. on a Saturday morning. Uh, and 29 million people from the U.S. woke up early in the morning, some like in Cal on the West Coast, at 4 a.m. to watch two people that they have never met in their life uh, get married, to watch a wedding. Uh, people set their alarms early on a Saturday to wake up and watch this couple get married. It's estimated, so that's, that's America, it's estimated that 2 billion people worldwide watched that wedding, um, which is almost a third of the planet, okay, woke up on a Saturday morning or in the middle of the night at 1 a.m. or 2 a.m. to watch Prince Harry and Meghan Markle get married. People getting up to watch a wedding for people who are not their kings and queens and aren't really kings and queens at all anyway. Um, but are like this kind of figurehead, sort of quasi-prince and princess getting married, and people woke themselves up. By the way, it's okay. This is a safe place. Did anyone watch that wedding? Get up to watch that. It's a safe space. We won't judge you. <laughs> I stayed up all night to watch it. Thank you very much. Uh, so <laughs> that is okay. That is okay. No. You're not, listen, you're not alone. One third of the planet was doing that. So apparently, apparently I'm the crazy one um, who wasn't watching this. This is a thing. And this is, uh, this is not the first time that the royal wedding has been this crazy thing. When, uh, who's the other one? Uh, well, there's that one. There's Diana, Prince Charles, and the other son. William and Kate. Yeah, when William and Kate got married. I don't think it was as big. I think it was like 22 million for that one or something like that, but still like a really huge deal. Why? Why is it, like psychologists have studied this, why people who aren't even from England, people in America, are so incredibly fascinated, will spend so much time studying and watching and learning about a quote-unquote royal family uh, on like the other side of the ocean, why that is such a big deal to us. Um, there is something, here's I think, uh, I, actually there's, there's a number of different answers offered by psychologists. Let me offer you one um, that's actually not mine, it's Tim Keller's, and he says this, that there is something deep inside every human heart that is fascinated with kings. Something inside of us that is drawn to this idea of kingship, that is drawn to the idea of royalty, so much so that in America, where we don't have our own kings and queens, we turn uh, musicians and athletes and politicians and whatever the Kardashians are into our own version of American royalty. These these people, these everyday normal people that we have given this irrational loyalty to, that we follow their lead in whatever they do, in the way they dress, and in their opinions on politics, and in the things that they do, and in the things that they lift up, people that we raise up as superior to us. Why? It's, it's almost as if we have some sort of innate need for royalty, some innate need within us for a king. 
Keller actually also points out in, in one particular sermon that there is this common theme that runs through a lot of stories throughout history. Um, a lot of literature has this, this one kind of story that comes up a lot, and that is the story of a land that once thrived under a good king or under a good line of kings, but now, for whatever reason, the king is gone. He's in a faraway land, or the line of the kings has ended, or been deposed, or he's gone into high, whatever that is. And the land waits, uh, waits for one day the king to return and make things right. And when he does return, everything's going to be okay again. And, and that's, that's ancient stories, and that's modern stories. That's Robin Hood, that's King Arthur, that's Lord of the Rings, and, and this tale has been told throughout stories in humanity all over the place. Why is it when, when the truth is actually we all know that historically that has not been the case? Kings, when human kings come and set up their rule, it does not often work out for the good and thriving of the land. So much so that actually almost every major monarchy ever has been deposed and replaced by democracy. There are very few actual kings reigning today because we know what happens when kings take the throne. And yet there is this thread running through our stories and running through our hearts of this dream of a king that will come and will make things right there must have been a fascination, because this fascination runs throughout history with kingship, there must have been a fascination for the children of Israel when they were coming out of uh, Egypt and into the promised land that was not yet theirs, and they were reading through these books that Moses was writing. It must have been a fascination when they came to Genesis 40, is it 8, 49? When they come to Jacob blessing his sons, and they come to this line there in Genesis 49, verses 8 through 10, talking about Judah, when it says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. When they're reading this, Israel has no reigning king. And the one person leading him is from the tribe of Levi, Levi it's Moses. And, and there must have been this fascination with them wondering what that is going to mean. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. What kind of king will this be? What, what is this that we ought to expect? Fast forward. So this takes place, Genesis 49, in roughly 1850 B.C. Fast forward about 800 years to a little bit before 1000 B.C., but in this, in this realm. First uh, Samuel 8 is the passage. Bad marker. And in 1 Samuel 8, now the Israelites have come out of Egypt. Now the tribes have taken hold of the land in Canaan, mostly. And they're living there in the promised land as their tribes. They're living under the reign of the judges, of which Samuel is the last. And they come to him and say, we want a king. 
We want a king like everybody else. We look around in all the other countries and they've got kings to look after them and take care of them and to have armies and to do all these things. We want one too. And Samuel tells them, you, you think you want one, but this isn't going to go well for you. Human kings don't work out well. As a matter of fact, you already have a king. And that's God. And that's what God says when Samuel comes to him. He says, it's not you they're rejecting, Samuel. They're rejecting me. They're rejecting their true king. But God, in His grace, chooses to give them a king anyway. And the first one that is given to them is a man by the name of Saul. And Saul looks the part. Saul is big and he's taller. He's a head and shoulders taller than everybody else. And he's handsome. And in his first acts as king, he proves to be pretty brave and valiant. And he wins all these other people. And he's also from the tribe of Benjamin, which doesn't... Fit. I, don't, I don't know if anybody was sitting there with the book of Genesis drawing the connections when that first happened, going, wait, how does this work? Because Jacob didn't say anything about Benjamin and a scepter and a ruler when we came to this. It was Judah, but, but that's where their first king comes from. Now, if, if you know the story, you know that Saul's kingship ends up being a disaster. He's the one who wanders away from the Lord, chooses his own path, and it ends up bringing, um, bringing punishment, bringing all kinds of consequences on him, on the people of Israel. And so God goes and handpicks another king. And this one is not a head and shoulders taller than everyone else. And this one is, is not striking and impressive when you first see him. But this one is from Judah. And his name is David. And David becomes the first um, the first true king, the first king to, to begin to fulfill the, um, the blessing that was promised forth in Genesis 49 when Jacob says that out of Judah, that the brothers of Judah will bow down to him um, and that the scepter will not leave him, that, that he will bring the obedience of the peoples. And there is this um, place in 2 Samuel. So let me just say, actually, the, the, the blessing given in Genesis 48 the words in there that we read will echo out throughout the rest of the Old Testament. These word pictures and these ideas of this ruler out of Judah will, will be come back to over and over again by different writers in the Old Testament. And so we'll see it kind of echo out through Scripture. And one of the first places it takes place is in 2 Samuel 7. And in 2 Samuel 7, David wants to build a temple for God because he's sitting there in his palace one day and he looks out at the tabernacle, which is just a tent, the worship place, the meeting, of, uh, the place, uh, or the meeting place for God and man. And, and he goes, man, this isn't, this isn't right. I need to, I'm in this really nice house and God's in a tent. I need to build him a house. And, and God sends the prophet Nathan to David and says, uh, tell you what, David, it's a nice thought, um, but how about instead of you building me a house, I'm going to build you a house. And he goes on in 2 Samuel 7 to, to tell David that he has chosen him and his line to rule. And that there will actually always be a descendant of David on the throne. This is 2 Samuel 7. If you have it, you can go there in your Bibles. 2 Samuel 7. I just want to read this one verse. You can, you can read it all yourself later, but this one verse 2 Samuel 7, 16, God says this to David, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, which sounds a lot like the scepter will not depart from Judah. There's another echo found in Psalm 2, 
which we believe to be a coronation psalm. That is a psalm that was written for the, the uh, occasion of crowning the king, perhaps David, definitely David's descendants from there on out, that whenever a new king was anointed and crowned, this psalm would be sung out. Go to Psalm 2 for just a second, and I'll, we'll read that one. Psalm 2, specifically verses 7 through 8. Now this, this psalm is about how God has this anointed king from the line of David that will be his, that will be his ruler, and how the nations of the world will come and, and they will try to rebel against him and they'll try to stop him, but he's going to overcome them and he's going to reign over them. This is what Psalm 2, verses 7 through 8 says. I will tell of the decree... Yahweh said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. This is about the anointed king. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession, which sounds a whole lot like to him shall be the obedience of the peoples right out of Genesis 49. The obedience of the nations. The nations will be your heritage and this idea comes up over and over that God rules his people and unfolds his purpose through the lion cub of Judah and specifically through the line of David. Now, there are some who will read this passage, Psalm 2, years and years and years later. We're getting ahead of ourselves a bit, but years and years and years later and go, wow, the language here sounds a little bit too strong for any one human king to be able to live that out. I don't know if anybody could really do all the things described in this. Maybe this is just kingly hyperbole, I don't know. But it sounds too big for that. But, but we're getting ahead of ourselves here. Now I want to go just 400 years later um, to around 590 is probably when this is being written, my guess. Um, in Ezekiel 19, the kings in David's line have become wicked and they have forsaken God. And as a result, he has forsaken them. They've chosen false gods. They've chosen idols. They've chosen their own path. They've chosen to abuse the poor. They've chosen to corrupt justice. They've chosen to do all these things, and now they're going to pay the price. And God has sent these Gentile nations. The very one that David's line is supposed to be ruling over, God sends the Gentile nations towards them to punish them to punish the kings of Judah, to, to punish these lions of Judah. This is what Ezekiel 19 says about those lions. Ezekiel 19, starting in 1, let me get there, says this, And you, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel, that is the kings of Israel, and say, What was your mother? A lioness. Among lions she crouched, in the midst of young lions she reared her cubs, and she brought up one of her cubs, and he became a young lion, and he learned to catch prey, and he devoured men. The nations heard about him. He was caught in their pit, and they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. Now this actually happened. This is King Jehoahaz, and this is told in both 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, was actually captured by Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and brought down as prisoner to Egypt. So this is what Ezekiel is referring to here. And it says, when she saw that, um, that she waited in vain, that her hope was lost, that is the king's not coming back, 
She took another of her cubs and made him a young lion. And he prowled among the lions. He became a young lion and he learned to catch prey. And he devoured men and seized their widows. He laid waste their cities. And the land was appalled and all who were in it at the sound of his roaring. And then the nations set against him from provinces on every side. And they spread their net over him. And he was taken in their pit. With hooks they put him in a cage and brought him to the king of Babylon. They brought him into custody that his voice should no more be heard on the mountains of Israel. Now we don't know whether this last king is referring to Jehoiakim because he got taken by the king of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, taken there as captive, or uh, his brother Jehoiachin because he got taken captive by the king Babylon, Nebuch- or yeah, King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, or the last one Zedekiah because he also got captured and taken as prisoner to Babylon. This is what happens to the lions of Judah. After years of rebellion against God, they become nothing more than zoo animals in the, in the zoo of the king of Babylon or the king of Egypt. And now, by this point, the kingdom, 586 is actually when the royal city Jerusalem is destroyed, 586 B.C., and the kingdom lies in ruins and the line of David is done until some... 600 years later, in about 6 B.C., when this little peasant girl um, from northern Palestine gives birth to this boy in the city of David. And I don't know if you've ever caught this. Have you ever noticed how the very first verse of the New Testament starts? Have you ever read and paid attention to the very first verse when you switch over to the New Testament, what Matthew says Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew wants you to know from the very beginning where we're going. This is not a story about an important prophet. This is not a story about a good teacher. This is not a story about a miracle worker. This is a story at the heart of history. This is a story that tells you that the king is back And he's here to make things right. Matthew says, let's just get that clear from the beginning, what we're doing here. We talked about this genealogy from Matthew several weeks ago. um, Some of the interesting names that comes up in it. One of the things we didn't talk about is that Matthew intentionally leaves some names off the list so that he can arrive at a specific number. Um, He leaves the name off the list so that there are three sets of 14 generations. So 14, and he'll he'll pause and he'll stress this in uh, verse 17, chapter 1, verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. And that's kind of fascinating, and people have wondered what to do with it. Um, I don't know if I can say exactly, but there is this Jewish practice called gematria, which is where they would assign numeric values to names. Um, And they do that by counting the consonants in the names. The vowels weren't often written. They were kind of sounded out through things, and so um, they would count the consonants. And so what's kind of interesting is if you sound out the consonants, um, sorry, this is Matt 1. I meant to write that there. If you sound out the consonants, um, in Hebrew, uh, David's name, actually ordering them in the alphabet, this is the fourth letter of the alphabet, this is the sixth, this is the fourth, 
It was 14. And so Matthew seems to be also, by the way, you want to know who the 14th person on the list is in this genealogy? King David. I think Matthew is trying to make a point by his very opening verse and by the way he structures the genealogy and by the placement of King David in this, do not miss where I'm going with this. Um, Not just a savior, a king. This is a king that I'm about to tell you about. And so he goes and he tells this story and so much of Jesus' talk in his ministry is about this one idea, more than anything else, over and over and over and over and over again, the kingdom. The kingdom of God that has now come to set up its rule and reign on earth through Jesus. And so often they missed it. You remember about a month ago when Uri sat on this stage and we asked him, why not Jesus? Why don't you believe Jesus is the Messiah? Why would the Jews not accept him? And he told you exactly what the Gospels tell you. And that is that the Jews are looking for a political Messiah. They're looking for someone who will come and by force, by military rule, by political savvy will set up his throne in Jerusalem. And Jesus didn't do those things. And he's right. He's right about both of those things. That the Jews expected that. You can see that time and time again as you read through the Gospels. And he's right that Jesus didn't do those things. When they asked him, where is the kingdom? He said, don't don't think you can look around and go, oh, here it is. Oh, here it is. Oh, this is what's happening. He says, no, no, the the kingdom of God is among you. It's already here, Jesus says. It's, It's happening when the blind are receiving their sight. It's happening when the truth is being proclaimed. It's happening when people are coming to see what is right, to see God as the right and and true ruler of all these people. But when the people realize that he's not the kind of Messiah they want, that he's not the kind of king that they want, they turn on him. They reject him. They rebel against him. One week before his death, as he comes marching into the city on on the back of a donkey, they shout this, Hosanna to the son of David. This is our guy. This is the dude we've been waiting for. This is the guy we want. This is the guy who's going to make everything right and get rid of the Romans and all of those things. And, And when he doesn't do that, they're done with him. And so they crucify him and they reject him. They have him executed. See, here's the truth is that... um, We have a fascination with kings. We love kings, or at least we love the idea of kings. But but the real truth is that for every one of us in our broken nature, we we hate the real king when we come to encounter him. They did. And that story still rings true today. That people are fine with teacher Jesus, and people are fine with miracle worker Jesus, and with prophet Jesus, and with religious leader Jesus, but they are not fine with Lord Jesus. Jesus. That's where people draw the line, even Christians. There are a group of Christians who hate the idea of what is called lordship salvation. That is, in order for me to be saved, I have to actually accept Jesus as Lord. And there are people who think that's wrong and they don't like that idea. All kinds of people hate the idea of King Jesus. My daughter, uh, Ella, asks me this question a lot. Just in the last like year, it's kind of like come to her mind that, that like, not everybody loves God that not everybody like wants to obey or follow Jesus. And that's kind of like fascinated her just because she's grown up in our family and in church and all those things where that's mostly all she's known. And so um, she, likes to, she likes to ask this question about like almost anybody we meet or anybody on TV or anyone who's singing songs, we hear their songs on the radio. Dad, do they love God? That's what she always likes to ask. Do they love God? And most of the time the answer is no. Um, 
And so I had to tell her, no, I, I, don't, I don't know for sure, but I don't think they do. And then her other big question that she asks me over and over again, why? Why don't people love God? Why, why don't they love God? Why, why wouldn't people? Um, and, and I tell her, uh, the reason that people don't love God, regardless of, of what many of us would want to say, um, I just put it in her words, because everybody wants to be their own boss. Nobody likes the idea of somebody else being their boss. There is no such thing as a neutral person when it comes to whether or not God exists and whether or not Jesus is the Son of God, whether or not Jesus is Messiah. All of us have a vested interest in that, and most people in the world have a vested interest in God not existing and in Jesus not being the King, because if He is, then I don't have rights to myself. Then, then someone else has rights to tell me how to live. Then someone else has rights to tell me what to do. If he exists, I do not have claims on my life. George MacDonald once said that the central conviction, this is, this is a writer from like mid-1900s, said the central conviction of hell is this, I am my own. That's the one thing everyone, everyone will agree on there. I am my own. That's, that's actually maybe the central conviction of this world today, actually. That I am my own, and this idea, this desire comes so naturally to us. Actually, if you remember, in our very like third week when we're talking through the book of Genesis, this is the line that, that the serpent uses to tempt Adam and Eve. If you'll eat this, you will be like God. You'll get to call the shots. You'll be able to choose what is right and wrong. You'll be able to know these things. And it's preached to us by our culture, and it's preached to us in the classroom to be your own man or woman, to be true to who you are, to not let anyone else dictate your actions or the kind of person you're going to be, which actually sounds really nice, but in the end, what they're actually doing is feeding that deep craving inside of all of us, that voice that cries out, I am my own. But here's the thing, you're not, and you don't actually have a choice in the matter. Like there's no such thing as having no king. The truth is that when you choose to, to not obey or follow the true king, then you, you're going to have to, by necessity, replace him with a counterfeit one. Because it's wired in you. It's wired in you to seek royalty. It's wired in you to seek something to build your life around. It's wired in you to find something like that. If you don't serve the true king, you'll find a substitute. You'll find another person to be your king. You'll find another celebrity. You'll find your reputation you'll set up as your king. Or money, or your comfort, or sex, or a life goal, or dream that you have. The list can go on and on. Even if you're the person who goes, no, not me. I don't really have one of those things. I just kind of live. Live and let live. I do my thing. That's what I, well, that is your king, doing your thing. Um, being able to live kind of the, the uninterrupted life however you kind of want to do it. And I guarantee you, even if that is your thing, that thing has cost you. You have actually, like, sacrificed relationships for that thing. You have sacrificed um, happiness. You have given yourself to anxiety over whatever your king is because that's what counterfeit kings do. They make promises that they cannot fulfill. And we live in a world that is filled with these. And, and, and this is basically kind of the definition of what's wrong. When you live in a world with a billion counterfeit kings all at odds with each other, the natural result is going to be brokenness and pain and violence and anxiety and death. And we know that. 
we know when we look at the world. I, I don't know anyone who looks at the world and says this is as it's supposed to be, that this is right. I, I don't actually think I know anybody who looks inside themselves and goes, this is as it's supposed to be. This is what I want it to be. This is what I dreamed. This is what I want for my kids, is to be this kind of person that I am. See, here's the truth. You were made to love the king, but in your natural state, you hate the king. But deep down inside, every one of us knows we need the king. Every one of us knows that we need someone who will come and make things right, that we're living the old stories of, of waiting for a king to come back and make things right for us. There's this scene in the book of Revelation. It's Revelation 5, and it might be the very last echo of Genesis 49 that we find in Scripture. And in this scene, John uh, is, he's kind of had this vision where he's, he's standing up in heaven and he's able to look around and see these things. And in this moment, in Revelation 5, there is this scroll that is sitting there and it's in the hand of God and it's, and it's got writing on the inside and the outside of it. That much John can see, but that's all he can see because it's sealed up. In fact, there are seven strong seals on it. And then this angel stands up in the middle of heaven and says, Who is worthy? to take the scroll, to break the seals, to open it up and read it. And then, silence. It just sits in silence because nobody's able to answer that question. Nobody's able to say, me, I'll do it. And, and what this scroll is, what it represents in Revelation 5, is the eternal decrees of God. Basically, God's plan for all of human history. So the question is, who is able to enact God's plan for human history? Who is, who is worthy to be able to make all of that happen, to be able to bring it all to fruition? And the answer is nobody. And, and so John says he begins to weep. He said, I began to weep loudly because there was no one who was found who was worthy to be able to open the scroll, to be able to break the seals. And then there's this amazing line, Revelation 5.5, 5, which as I said to you is probably the final echo of Genesis 49. Revelation 5, 5 says this, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and, his se and its seven seals. And then John looks and something kind of weird happens. It's the book of Revelation, so lots of weird stuff is happening all the time. John looks, and this person who's been described as the Lion of Judah doesn't look like a lion anymore. He actually looks like a different kind of... Actually, there's this phrase that John uses about him that I don't think had ever been used about any other person before in history because it's a nonsensical phrase. You can't... Like, it's impossible for this to be true of anyone. He says, I looked and I saw a lamb. So that's the new version of what he's seen. I looked and I saw a lamb standing as though slain. That's the weird phrase right there. It, it's impossible to stand as though slain. You can't, if you are slain, you are by definition not able to stand. And so how does somebody stand as though slain unless that person is no longer slain? There's only one person that was ever able to be able to have that said of him. And, and in the book of Revelation, John says, there is only one person worthy, able to accomplish all of God's plans for human history, 
to enact the eternal decrees of God. There's only one person who is able to bring all of that to fruition. Only one person who's able to do it. And the way he does it, he says, is by, this, by, by being slain. That this is how he conquers, not by military might or by political rule, but he did it by dying and raising again to destroy the devil's power and to rob death of its sting and to take all of those things away. And this is the true king. This is the only king that you've been waiting for forever. This is the only king that is worthy of being followed because it's the only king whose rule will never end. It's the only king whose promises do not betray you, who doesn't promise you one thing, blessing and benefit, and then go and enslave you in some sort of weird bait and switch like every other counterfeit king that I've ever served before in my life. This is the only king who's worthy of being followed because, make no mistake, he, he does come to reign. He does come to rule over you. He does come to be your lord. But in your lordship, or in his lordship, you find your freedom. You find what that thing inside of your heart has been calling out for all of these, uh, all of these years. Now, now, most of us in this room know this, right? I think. Most of us in this room know this. And yet, it can be so easy for us to be lured into serving counterfeit kings. Kings whose rule will not last. Kings whose rule betrays us over and over and over again. What I want to do is... Um, Actually, in just a minute, I want to read through Revelation 5. And let us have a picture of the true king for just a second. Um, but before I do that, I want to have the, the band come up here. I want to give you a moment to ask, uh, to I say ask yourself, maybe to ask God this question. Are there counterfeit kings that I'm serving rather than the true one? Are there ones that I'm following that I'm not supposed to? Um, to ask God to reveal that to you and then ask God to give you a bigger picture of the true king. So take a moment to do that and then I want to read through, I'll read through Revelation 5 for you, okay? Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. 
And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was sealed on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing.'" 